Good morning. How are y'all? The anxiety I had last night thinking about coming up here after Pastor Peter was, uh, was very real. He said, y'all are accustomed to a, a style of communication that I don't know if I can get on the same page. Um, yeah. <laughs> to, to help us this morning, let me, uh, let me open us up in prayer. Lord, we, we thank you so much for uh, your church. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for bringing all these people here. Lord, uh, be with us. Lord, we, we, uh, we need so much help. Our, our eyes close uh, every day, and that's why we ask you to open them, soften our hearts. Lord, be with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, I want to do a little bit of background on what the course is going to be over the next uh, few weeks, and then we're going we're gonna to dive right in. Does that work? Okay. So as Pastor Peter said, we're going to do a systematic and theological approach to the person of God. So what does that mean? The person of God will look at the nature of God, his character, his attributes, and all the things that flow from that. And importantly for us, as, as human beings created in the image of God, what does that mean? We're his special creation. So are there attributes of God that flow to us as his special creation? So that's, that's going to be what the end goal is of the course over the next few weeks. To kind of set the stage ahead of time, though, we're going to do this week and next week, we're going to do a little bit of an introduction to what is theology, what is systematic theology, why are we studying this way so that we can go in the next few weeks uh, well prepared. Does that work? Okay. Well, if how many of you were, were in here for the D&D class, the systematic theology class? Okay. So this, much of the material we're going to cover today and next week, we, we covered uh, in the first few weeks of systematic theology uh, in, in that course. We, I just think it's necessary. And talking to Pastor Peter over the last few weeks, he said, repeat it, repeat it over and over again. And I was reminded, we've been through Alpha probably 20 times, and every time we go through Alpha, we're like, man, I, even though I've heard that before, that's a great reminder. I, I like that I, I just heard that again. And so this is, this is what we're going to do. So this morning, we're going to look at four questions. We're going to look at what is theology? What is systematic theology? What does it mean that we're systematizing our theology? How do we study theology and why? Well, let's dive into that first question. What is theology? I don't know about you, but many people, when they hear the word theology, they're typically not getting feelings of, you know, warm relationship with God. They're, they're thinking of the hollow halls of a seminary and dry and rigid and academic. And for that reason, a lot of people, when they hear that, they kind of back away. I've got a, a good friend. I just had lunch with him this past week. He likes talking about Jesus. You start talking about theology. Now, nah, that's, that's strange. I don't want to get into all that. And I think the reason is, is that I think people are misguided about what theology is. So I, I want to bring a definition uh, that may help us. Christians have viewed theology as a pursuit to know the character, will, and acts of the triune God as he has revealed for us in the scripture, most expressly seen in Christ and applied to our hearts and minds by the work of the Spirit. I'm going to say that one more time. Christian theology is the pursuit to know the character, will, and acts of the triune God, as he has revealed for us in the scripture, most expressly seen in Christ, and applied to our hearts and minds by the work of the Spirit. Does that make sense? And so with with this view of theology, the goal of theology is not merely 
let me know more things. Let me get more information. But it's transformation. It's actually coming to know God and have fellowship and relationship with him. And the end goal of that is that we're conformed to the image of his son. That's the reason why we do anything as believers, so that we look like Jesus. Okay, let's look at number two. What is systematic theology? Well, I think it it would be good to start with what systematic theology is not, okay? It is not historical theology. What do we mean by that? Historical theology looks throughout the the, uh, church age and says, what do different Christians over time, over the course of history, believe about various doctrines? So, for example, what did the early church after the apostles believe about baptism? Was it infants? Did you have to be a believer? What did the Reformation church believe about baptism? So that's an example of... Historical theology, while important, that's not what we're doing today. It is also not, now this this may confuse us a little bit, it's not biblical theology. Now, we of course want all of our theology to be biblical, but biblical theology is a very specific technical uh, endeavor. Biblical theology understands particular beliefs where they fall in the biblical timeline. Just to give us an example... If you were to ask, can the people of God approach the presence of God fearlessly and boldly? What's the answer to that? Okay. I would say it depends. Are we talking about the people of God with Moses at Mount Sinai? Are we talking about the people of God in the new covenant? Isn't the answer different? It depends. And so approaching the presence of God in the old covenant was very, very different. So biblical theology understands theology relative to where it falls in the biblical timeline. What may be true for one people group need not be necessarily true for the other. Systematic theology is also not a system, okay? This is a uh, uh, gripe that some people have that we're imposing something onto the text of the Bible. And that's not the goal at all. We, We actually are not imposing anything. We're rather letting Scripture speak and dictate truth to us. Systematic theology helps us avoid uh, putting our own beliefs onto the Bible. Well, then what is systematic theology? What does it mean that we are systematizing our theology? Well, it does two things. Number one, it answers questions. And number two, it organizes answers. It answers questions and it organizes answers. Let's look at that first one. It answers questions. I think I had this on the notes. Uh, Grudem writes in Systematic Theology that it answers the question, what does the entire Bible teach us today about any given topic? What does the entire Bible teach us today about any given topic? So, for example, if, if someone were to ask you, what does the Bible teach us about prayer? Your answer to that would be an, an exercise in systematic theology. Or if someone said, how are people saved according to the Bible? What would we do? We'd go and scour the biblical text and give them an answer for this is how someone is saved. This is also called a doctrine. So the answer to these questions are doctrines. We have the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of prayer, the doctrine of Christ. If you have your your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 24. See an example of this from scripture. Luke chapter 24. This is after the resurrection. Jesus is on a road to a village in a town called Emmaus. 
and he meets a man named Cleopas. It's a good, good name. So Luke 24, and we'll start in verse 25. And Jesus said, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And to back up for a second, they were speaking to Jesus just moments earlier, and they didn't recognize him. And so Jesus is coming at them. You, have, you foolish heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus just gave us an example of systematic theology. He went to the Old Testament and gave them a Christological example of himself. He said, look, I'm all throughout the Old Testament. That was the full Bible at the time. So much in the same way that we would sit down with somebody and say, let me tell you about the person of Jesus. And you open up your Bible and you might be able to go from the beginning to the end. That's an example of systematic theology. Let's look then at number two. It not only answers questions, but it organizes our answers. Systematic theology strives to study theology in an orderly and organized manner. As I'm putting my notes together, it just dawned on me, how much is this needed that we need an organization to the way that we think? Right now in our culture, Everything, people don't know up from down to left to right. C.S. Lewis said our feet are firmly planted in midair. And so we need organization to the way that we think. It's dangerous sometimes for us to go without any, and look, okay, this, does this make sense? So systematic theology brings order to our doctrines. And so in, in the book that we're going through right here, I forgot to plug it in the beginning, this, this nice large book. It's organized in, in order of the revelation of God, to the person of God, to creation, then to the church, salvation, so forth. And so there's a particular order when we look at these books. All right, let's look at number three, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Why do we study theology? Is this something that's just for nerdy Christians just maybe, uh, maybe special Christians, the overachiever, or is this something that, that all of us should study? What do you all think? All of us? Okay, let's see if we can, uh, let's see if we can defend that claim. Open back, turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Okay, the first reason why we study theology is we study to teach the commandments of Christ. In Matthew twenty-eight sixteen, this is after his resurrection again. He is meeting with his disciples. And Jesus says, or it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we see this very famous verse, the Great Commission. Jesus is telling his disciples, All authority has been given to me. 
because I've achieved all things in righteousness in my humanity. I've been given all authority. And you can anticipate his disciples thinking, well, Jesus, what are we to do as a response? What does he tell them? Go. Because of my authority, you are to go. Do you all recall when we leave the church, there's that plaque that's in the ground? When we leave, there's one that goes in, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And there's the one when we leave that says, go therefore and make disciples. Why? Because the church is not the end place. This is the beginning. I know a lot of times we go to church, it hits the checkbox, we get the family in the car, we go to Chili's after. We're not really thinking about what our mission is in between. But we're to leave the church and we're to go. And we're to go and do what? Jesus tells us two things. Let's see what those are and see how theology might aid in helping this. He tells us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so that's the evangelistic piece, the component, the uh, conversion piece to this. You're to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ to people. Convert people, bring in disciples. But are we to leave people there? Oh, okay, you've accepted Christ. Later, lose my number. Or do we have something else that we're to do when we lead them to Christ? What are we to do? Yeah. It says, after making them disciples, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What does that assume? If we're to teach, it it implies that we're to know what Jesus actually taught, doesn't it? And how do we know what Jesus taught unless we study? So we are called to impart the teachings of Jesus to the world, but we cannot impart what we do not possess. And so theology aids in us fulfilling the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples. Number two, the second reason why we should study theology, we study to defend and offer Christian hope. We study to defend and offer Christian hope. Turn with me toward the back of your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. All right, we'll look at verse 15. Peter's writing to believers here, and he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Anytime someone asks you to defend the hope, we should be able to do that. Theology helps in that. Note here, Christians should be able to understand what it is that they believe and be able to defend their beliefs thoughtfully, reasonably, and biblically. Now, I want to share a story. It's a sad story of a pastor that left the faith as a result of not having his questions answered. This is a a story by a man named Marty Sampson of Hillsong Church in Australia. And this is a post he made after he came out that he was no longer a Christian. He says, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't even bother me. Like what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? He says, many. And he says, no one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. 
How can God be love yet send four billion people to a place just because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. Now, they can be some of the most beautiful and loving, but it's just not for me. I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. I got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. All I know is that what's true to me right now is that Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. What a sad story. You see, Marty had a lot of questions to people, and the people he asked could not defend the hope of what it is that they believe. Now, I would say the charge of 1 Peter 3 is not simply from an apologetic standpoint when people ask, but my own, pers- my own life, when I've gone and explored reasons why I believe, what it does to my own faith is just incredible. It just bolsters up my faith. And so when somebody does ask, I'm ready to give a defense. As I was preparing this, I thought of uh, Todd teaching us a few weeks ago in Psalm 1 of the, how we avoid this sort of pitfall and Todd describing to us from the psalm about the blessed man and the man that's like the tree firmly planted by the water whose leaves are not withering. He doesn't fail in anything that he does. Is the man that what meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. It becomes his identity. And so that when any storm comes, when any of these questions come, let's say you don't have an answer to some of these questions. That's okay. I'm like the tree firmly planted because I am consumed with the word of God. Now, even more challenging, what if it's not a stranger that's asking us these questions? What if it's a a child or a family member? There is just very sadly an increase of children that are having a loss of identity. They don't know who they are. They don't know what gender they are. They don't know their preferences for the opposite sex or same sex are changing every single day. And they come to us as their parents, and we need to be able to give them biblically grounded advice. If we don't, what other advice are we giving them? The world's literally going to take them and pull them away. And so theology, it's not just an exercise of increasing our knowledge. It's literally a life or death thing. We're we're aiding people in understanding the creator that made them and rooting them in that. Number three, why we study theology. We study to rid ourselves of common errors now and to create a safeguard against false beliefs that may arise later. Okay, here's an example of, and I'm guilty of all these. Uh, Common error now. I don't need doctrine. I just need Jesus. Can can we admit, have some of us said that before? Yeah. (laughs) A a, uh, a five-minute discussion with a Jehovah's Witness will quickly show you that Uh, You need a little bit more than just Jesus. We need doctrine, right? Because Jesus is a real person, and Jehovah's Witnesses have very different beliefs than we do, and they can shake us a little bit. I mean, Saturday mornings, if you can, you know, if the kids happen to be walking past the door, instead of you telling them to hide behind the couch like we normally do so that nobody sees them, and a Jehovah's Witness sees you, you're like, okay, I got to go engage with them now. What do we do? What do we do? So we talk to them, and, and normally... Christians, yeah, I want to evangelize. I want to, I want to spread the gospel. But when a Jehovah's Witness comes to our door or a Mormon, we, we just do not want to talk to them. We have somebody coming to our door saying, I want to talk to you about God, and we just don't want to engage with them. Why is that? Is it that we don't want to be bothered? Maybe. 
I think it could also be that we're not prepared and we just simply don't know how to interact with them. A, a common thing a Jehovah's Witness will do, they'll pin you on Jesus and they'll say, Jesus wasn't eternal. Jesus wasn't God. Well, yeah, he was. And what do we do? We'll quote John 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. They'll immediately respond back and say, well, Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the firstborn of God's creation. How is he eternal? Revelation 3 says that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. John 10, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. Was he equal to God or is the Father greater than him? Well, I'm not sure. Have a good day, sir. And we just retreat back into our our homes. So studying theology not only uh, avoids that, but it also also can help lead Jehovah's Witness to Christ. And I've had many great conversations. They said they would come back. They did not come back. It was very upsetting (laughs) and offensive. All right, number two, common errors now. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. We've definitely said that. I've said that. I've said that. I've said that probably this week. So what's the problem with this? Well, I think this is partially true, but it, it seeps in with some error. So what do we mean by this? We mean that Christianity is not a dead religion, right, when we say it's not a religion. It's not a works-based religion. It's not just let me go down my checklist, and then I'll be right with God. And that is, of course, true. I think the problem when we say it's not a religion, it's a relationship— is it kind of communicates that it's just this free-for-all, it's just me and Jesus, we don't really, there's not really any doctrine involved. But as Christians, we're committed to believing certain things. We believe that God exists. We believe that God became flesh in the person of Jesus, that he rose again physically from the dead, that he's returning, and that salvation is by grace through faith. These are real things. So is it a relationship? It is, but we need to be careful what we mean when we say that. Okay. Uh, third point here, an example of the need to safeguard against future error can be seen in a common passage by the Apostle Paul where it seems like he's giving credence to the up-and-coming transgender movement. Okay, now this, this may sound ridiculous. In five or ten years ago, you would have said, there's, there's no way, don't believe it. This passage is seen all over the internet in defending Paul's view. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. All right, and we're in verse 28. It's a known verse. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. It looks like Paul is denying the gender binary, right? What do do we do with this? Now, I imagine when we see this, that obviously sounds wrong, but I'm not sure exactly why it is wrong. What would I say back to somebody who brought this verse up? What do we do? And I'm intentionally not resolving some of these just to leave the tension to hopefully encourage us to pursue our study. Theology helps avoid these sorts of errors. All right, number four, the fourth reason why we study theology is that it aids in Christian maturity. Aids in Christian maturity. I have here on your notes, 1 Timothy chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
So you notice here that there's a doctrine that accords with godliness. There's a connection between what it is that we believe and what it is that we do. 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul lists all sorts of immorality and says that this is contrary to sound doctrine. And so proper doctrine produces proper living. What we believe does determine what our behavior looks like. I think that this is obviously true. An example in my own life is in my marriage. So uh, next two weeks, I will have been married 14 years. And throughout the, the course of the marriage, there's all these ups and downs. There's difficulties, much of which that I've brought to the marriage myself, not just from the outside. But, uh, and I've had you know, thoughts in my head like, man, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not happy. I'm not, you, what, you know, if I would have married someone else, maybe my life would be a lot easier, right? And so what, what my, my thoughts and my beliefs are dictating potentially what it is that I'm going to do. Now, obviously, this is, this is wrong, and I had a, I had a good friend. And, I, you know, maybe three years ago, we were having some, some challenges, and this good friend told me when I was expressing all these concerns, he said, Matt, your marriage is not about you. It's not about you. You have to think, what does your marriage represent? Your marriage represents the covenant that God made with his people. And they were constantly running away, but God was faithful. Do you think, it, do you think God was happy all the time with his people? He was faithful to them, not because of them, but because of his own faithfulness. So when my friend told me that, I hung up the phone. I never called him again. But <laughs> this, was, this was very good advice, right, isn't it? And so what we, what we believe determines what it is that we do. If In our culture where divorce is so prevalent, if we, and just any reason, we, we look at marriage so thinly. If we believe that my marriage is about me and my happiness and my contentment, then the outcome is going to be very different than if I believe, no, this is a lifelong commitment that I've made to this person and it represents God's covenant with me. So what we believe certainly makes a difference in what we do. All right, number five. Ultimately, we study theology to know God, right? Isn't, isn't that why we open up our Bibles, why we read anything? We, we study our Bibles to know God more. Grudem says this, the more we know about God and his word, the better we will trust him, the more fully we will praise him, and the more readily we will obey him. The more I get to know about my wife, the more I love her. Because, and Frank has talked about this in Alpha, right? I'm aware of her kindness, her character, her nature, the way that she's interacted with me when I'm acting a fool and, and doing all the stuff that I do. And so the same, the same way with God, the more we know him, the more we love him. Our praise is much deeper. We, we are much more grounded when we have a better understanding of God. And remember, our relationship with God needs to be based on, on his terms, right, not ours. And so his terms are laid forth for us in the scripture. I want to end in the five minutes we have left with uh, how we study theology, because I do think that this is important. It's not just a um, go here without any consideration. Psalm one nineteen eighteen says, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. How do we study theology? We study theology with prayerful dependence on the spirit of God. Because like I said before, uh, every single day we could ask him to open our eyes. And what do we do? We like to shut them quickly after. And so we ask him, Lord, give me understanding. First Corinthians two says the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly, they're foolishness to him. 
and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we're, we're dealing with two different realities, a natural reality and a spiritual reality. And a lot of times our flesh wants to keep pulling us back and convince us that this is the proper way to think. Lord, continue to open my eyes so I may see the spiritual truths. Second, we are to study theology in community and with help from others. This is a very, very common thing that's stated. I I don't need help. I don't need teachers. I just need the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And let me just say that that is not biblical, right? We see all throughout the scripture that teachers were given to us by God, right? We're given pastors. Philip deals with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 who's reading the book of Isaiah. He says, how do you know what I'm reading? He says, I don't know what I'm reading unless someone teaches me. And so let's, let's not scoff at the teachers that God has given us, the men and women that have gone before us. We're all part of the same body of Christ, whether they're alive now or then. But we do theology and community. It's a safeguard to prevent us from veering off into aberrant theologies. The Lord gifts the church with teachers to guide us. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conclude by making this uh, one statement and, and things to think about as we, uh, as we enter into Next week. So next week, we're going to take a look at the Word of God, the nature of the Word of God, just because once we get to week three, I think it's important that we understand what this Word is and how it can be trusted. And so there's three things that we're going to hold on to. Number one, the Bible is true in everything that it affirms. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. The last thing is that man does not discover God. Man does not find God. The only thing we know about God is because God has chosen in his sovereign will to reveal himself to us. And it needs to be what he has revealed to us that we pursue. All right. Well, that wraps us up. Thank you, guys.